Do you remember what 2021 was like? Do you remember what we were thinking? Like, oh my gosh, we survived 2020. You, you're kind of hesitant to say Happy New Year. It was like, we survived, what's next, right? It kind of woke us up that just because it's a new year, it doesn't guarantee that we're going to have a good new year. And so we might say Happy New Year, but the truth is we don't know what this new year holds. Um, and so in light of life's uncertainty, uh, uh, the question really comes to us, can we actually plan for a happy new year? Is that something we can actually plan for? Um, and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at Psalm 1, and we're going to see in our text this morning that in spite of life's uncertainties, we can have a happy new year. That's where we're going. Now, that's pretty cool, okay? So some of you are like, ah, we'll see about this, Okay. But why don't we pray before we get going, and then we'll take a look at the text. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Psalm 1 is a fascinating chapter in the Bible. It serves as the doorway into the rest of the Psalms, and many people believe it actually serves as the doorway into the Bible itself. And what that tells us is that Psalm 1 is an essential text. It gives us fundamental and essential truths that are foundational for knowing what Christianity teaches and what God thinks and the whole bit. And Psalm 1 starts with this amazing, amazing claim about human existence. If you see it there in the text, Psalm 1-1 it says, blessed is the man. In other words, happiness is possible. Happiness is possible. That word, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, it comes from uh, not Baruch, blessed, but ashare, which means happy. And so that's why a lot of translators and a lot of scholars will translate blessed is the man, happy is the person. Man in Hebrew is uh, singular, generic, so it's, it could just, it's any godly person. So happy is the person. Now, for my whole sermon to work, it's going to be really important that you buy that, okay? And some of you have had translations, you're like, yeah, mine says happy the person. I think they include blessed simply because there is going to be a kind of beatitude here that's going to happen. But it literally is happy is the person. And the claim here in Psalm 1-1 is really quite staggering. It's a staggering statement. It's a thunderous statement. It's an unbelievable statement that happiness is possible. Now, some of you might be thinking, really? <laughs> I got up early and came to church. I got drugged here to find out that happiness is possible. I know happiness is possible. I already did my New Year's resolutions. I'm going to fulfill it this year. I'm going to have a great year. Good luck with that, okay? That's all I have to say, personally speaking, my own personal record of keeping these things. Uh, you know, the truth is, is when you start out in life, you just kind of have this natural assumption that you're going to have a happy life. You know, you kind of think like, well, yeah, you know, other people may not have happy lives, but they probably did something to deserve that. They goofed up somewhere along the way. They don't work as hard as me. You know, they don't, you know, they're, they're not as smart as me. I remember talking to my teenage daughter one time and she informed me that someday she was going to own a Lamborghini. I was like, wow, God bless you, honey. <laughs> you know, life has a way of disabusing you of the simplicity of just simply being happy 
right? And in fact, as you go through life and you experience the vicissitudes, the up, the down of circumstances, you can come to the place where you feel like happiness is really kind of like a pipe dream. In fact, there's certain skeptics of happiness. One skeptic in particular is the evolutionary psychologist, uh, Raphael Yuba. We're not on? Okay, should come, okay. Raphael Uba, let me get to where I'm at. Here we go. All right, great name. Evolutionary psychiatrist, he writes this. Humans are not designed to be happy or even content. Instead, we're designed primarily to survive and reproduce. We should take comfort in the knowledge that unhappiness is not really our fault. It is the fault of our natural design. It's in our blueprint. So don't feel bad if you don't feel happy. It's in your blueprint. Now, I find it interesting that this psychologist tells us to take comfort in knowing that we can't be content. Taking comfort sounds an awful lot like an encouragement that don't worry, you can still be happy even though you're not happy. You know, even when a skeptic is trying to argue that happiness is not possible, they incentivize the listener by assuring assuring them they can have some happiness, though it's mitigated. The truth is, is we can't escape this fundamental desire for happiness. One philosopher writes, happiness is not only something we long for, but something we can't help but long for. The longing seems rooted in our nature. It is our deepest and most persistent desire. Every human language has a word for it because every human mind has at least a dim idea of it. Whether the thing that the word happiness names can be attained at all, and if so, how, and to what degree is a matter of great interest to human beings in every age. And in fact, that's true. You know, you look at the history of human thought. You look at the things that drive history, and it really comes down to this quest for happiness. It's been the silent reason behind every emerging field of research, hard and soft sciences, It's the marketing ploy behind every marketing play. It serves as the unspoken criterion by which we judge a host of things in our lives, the most significant relationships we have, even the worth of our life. This drive for happiness is unbelievable. So if indeed the quest for human happiness is central to our condition, and if it's not only something every person longs for, but according to Psalm 1, something that we can have, then the question, the logical question, the only question we can come to is why so few people find it. And you know what's interesting is right after making this astounding claim that happiness is possible, the psalmist anticipates this question of, well, why do so few people get it? Okay, now let me catch up on my slides. Happiness is possible. We did that. Blessed is the man. It's because unhappiness is also deeply possible. Notice that the psalmist, after making this incredibly amazing positive claim, immediately goes into the negative. Blessed is the man, happy is the person, and then the negative, who walks not, nor stands, nor sits. I think the psalmist is anticipating uh, what we understand, which is it's easy to get sidetracked from true happiness. A lasting true happiness is possible but only if we don't go down a million bad roads. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat 
of scoffers. Now, notice these three negative lines. They are a unit. And maybe you can see here that there is a regression. I don't say a progression. If it was a progression, you'd go from sitting to standing to walking. But it's actually in reverse. You go from walking to standing to sitting. It's a regression. And what is this regression? Well, it's a regression, a downward trajectory away from that happiness, that blessedness. How does it happen? Well, it starts right here. This, oops, doesn't start there. It starts right here. Well, now we're all over. It starts right here. Well, it doesn't start at all. I'm having a day right now. I'm having a day. So much for the pen. I even have my notes. Use pen here. It's cool. Okay, well, all right. There we go. There we go, but now it's not. Okay, so we'll we'll see how that works. 2023, pray for me. (laughs) I hope this isn't a sign of how the rest of the year goes. Baby, let's pack up as soon as we get home and get out of California. Just kidding. Okay. Blessed is the man, number one, it says, uh, uh, the first step, the first downward trajectory is, it starts by following the bad advice of the wicked. You see that? The wicked right there. The wicked there means faithless. This is the person who gives no regards to God's instruction. And so this is those who listen to the advice of those who disregard God in their formulas for happiness. They are the faithless. In other words, their suggestions override God's instructions. They go from walking to standing, nor stands in the way of sinners, okay? Sinner is a moral failure. The person goes from listening to that advice and doing it to making it a practice in their life, something they stand firm in. That practice, in other words, it becomes a habit. And New Year's is a great time, by the way, for us to interrogate our habits. And then finally, in this downward trajectory, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What is a scoffer? A scoffer is somebody who doesn't want you to tell them what to do. They're no longer able to even discuss their own approach to happiness. They've made up their mind, and they're sitting down, and they're not moving. But notice that the sitting is also they're sitting with other scoffers. And so the final step in the trajectory downward from happiness is where you become convinced not only of how you're going to get happy, but you gather other people in your social network that are also convinced of this is the only way you do it, and you use that kind of social support to become stuck in your view. There is a regression. Uh, John Goldengay, Old Testament scholar, says, listening to people formulate plans is one thing, Acting on them is another. Spending one's life in the company of such schemers is to walk into a marsh from which one is unlikely to emerge. We can miss out on unhappiness. It doesn't happen all at once. It begins when we go about looking for happiness in the wrong way. It takes us on a path that we get entrenched in, and eventually we get sucked into a lifestyle that cannot return happiness. And the psalmist warns, therefore, that we need to be careful because happiness easily eludes us. Now, I love Thomas Aquinas. I know as an evangelical Protestant, we usually don't go to Aquinas. Aquinas is amazing, by the way. We need to have a whole class on how amazing Aquinas is. But one of the things that's fascinating about Thomas Aquinas is in his giant magnum opus, the Summa Theologica, he has a a huge section on happiness, Uh, tons of chapters on happiness. He thought happiness was serious business. 
And in this section in his Summa, uh, which he's dedicated on happiness, he explores whether people can have happiness and what's the relationship between happiness to things like wealth and honor and fame and power and health and pleasure and loving ourselves and meaning-making and friendship and just plain old luck. And uh, by the way, if, if, if you're looking for a distillation of Aquinas' work, I would recommend the philosopher uh, J. Uh, uh, Budyashetsky. That Polish name is tough right there. Um, how and How Not to Be Happy. Great little book. Kind of digests uh, Aquinas on this. But here's the spoiler alert, okay? The spoiler. For Aquinas, an enduring happiness is elusive because there are so many things that seem to promise that durable happiness that either don't deliver or they under-deliver. And I want us to think about this for a second. You know, if you go through and you read, I think it's like 80 pages in the Summa on happiness, what, and, and, or if you read uh, 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 Budyashevsky, what you find is that happiness is an incredibly complex thing. There's so, it's, it's elusive in so many ways. A lot of it is because there's the sense that it's gonna, uh, the things we think are going to get us happy don't get us happy. And some of it is the things that we think are going to make us happy. They kind of do, but they don't quite deliver. And there's a complexity to it. And by the way, this fits with all the recent research on happiness. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's been a ton of research on happiness recently. Uh, Dan Gilbert, psychologist, has written extensively on the science of happiness, and he shows that our beliefs about happiness are routinely wrong. I think this has been said from this pulpit. You know, if you take two people that have gone through two very different events, one person has won the lottery and the other person has become a paraplegic, a year after that event, it's proven that they have the same degree of happiness generally. Or take wealth. Once you've reached the minimum requirement to sustain your basic needs, it's proven that no more increase in wealth will help your happiness. There's all kinds of surprises when you get into this stuff. Uh, suicide rates in affluent neighborhoods are higher than in middle-class neighborhoods. Um, and when it comes to our technology, thank God for indoor plumbing and flush toilets. On the other hand, social media has created a certain crisis in our ability to feel good about our lives. I don't know if you know this, but there has been a raise in suicide since the millennium of 35% in America, and people are accrediting that in large part to social media. Some other surprises, you go back in time, we think of the Middle Ages as this ghastly time, and parts of it were ghastly, you know, the Dark Ages. But what's shocking and surprising is suicide was almost unheard of. And, and there was no such thing as eating disorders. And when you read the journals and you read the, you know, the basic kind of diaries of people, cultural historians will say, these people seem generally pretty happy. And so there's all kinds of unexpected surprises when it comes to the pursuit of happiness. In The Good Life, which was based on a Harvard study, the longest study in the history of the academy, a 75-year-old study, it compared two groups. One group of men that were at Harvard, this is the 1930s when they started, and one group of men who were from the poorest neighborhood in Boston. And they tracked their lives for 75 years to see what created happiness. And here is the jaw-dropping shocker. That difference, you think about the difference in status and privilege and wealth, and I mean, you can't get a greater disparity than those two kind of groups. That had nothing to do with their happiness. Their happiness actually ended up being very much marked on basic things that it didn't require going to Harvard or being in an impoverished neighborhood. It actually was things like you had a good relationship with your family, you would score higher. 
very basic things about just, I mean, basically, it's like the book of Proverbs. That whole entire study is like, you know, Proverbs talks about, you know, having good friends is important, honoring your parents and treating them with respect is important. Like the things we think, oh, the Bible, it's old fashioned. Oh, no. Oh, no. Like, seriously. So what's surprising here is long before these studies warned us to think twice, even before Aquinas did his magisterial study, the psalmist was letting us know, be careful. There is a lot of ways you can go wrong on this one. Or in the words of Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. So finding an enduring happiness requires avoiding a lot of bad paths. But here's the thing. We need to know what the true path is, right? That's the bottom line, is we need to know what true happiness looks like. And so for the rest of this sermon, let's talk about what the psalm, the psalm here tells us about true happiness. What does this psalm tell us about what true happiness looks like? Now, you've heard the, the, the famous couplet, two men looked out from prison bars, one saw mud, the other stars, okay? The funny thing about that is you have the same, same situation, same prison bars, the whole deal, two people looking out, and one sees stars and one sees mud. And what that tells us is that anybody that's thought about it has realized if you're going to have some kind of enduring or durable happiness, you need to be able to ground your happiness in something beyond simply the circumstances of life. You need to be able to have a perspective that transcends the vicissitudes of this world. And there's been a lot of thinking on this. You have the Stoic response. The Stoic argues that you do this by divorcing yourself uh, from your desires through a state of apathia or apathy, which means that you become something like untouchable. You cut off that part of you that tends to attach, the part that desires, and you become untouchable. That's the Stoic response. Jonathan Swift famously said, the Stoical scheme of supplying our wants by lopping off our desires is like cutting off our feet when we want shoes. <laughs> I think that's funny. Eastern thinking, some of it, is even more radical. You reach this place of true happiness by denying not just simply the existence of your desires, but your very self. <laughs> I lop off not only my feet, but my whole person. I become a drop that dissolves into the world, and therefore, I have no attachments. Let's contrast that with what the psalmist says. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. The psalmist says, if you want to find true happiness, rather than simply getting rid of your attachments and your desires and your delights, quite the opposite, you need to place your attachments and your desires and your delights into something that nothing in this world can get to. Nothing in this world can get to. In other words, you need to become a person who's deeply in love with God. That's what it looks like to find true happiness. Look how the godly person here has developed this attachment. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, some of you are thinking like, okay, I'm not real big on the rules in the Bible, but this person apparently found happiness by being all about the rules. When it says the law of the Lord, it's actually referring to the Torah, and the Torah is about the instruction of God, and it's actually shorthand for the full counsel or instruction of God. And so the happiness is not found by this person focusing in on the rules, the happiness is found by making all of God's instructions a rule for their life. In other words, there's a certain posture this person has when they approach God's word. They have a deep 
delight, an openness, and a joy. They can hardly wait to hear God speak through his word. They have developed this kind of hunger for God's word. They delight in God's word. This kind of unqualified delight in God's word might set off some alarm bells for you. You know, increasingly, the Bible has become problematized in the modern world. Yale scholar Hans Frey has noted that a decisive development in modern thought has taken place. And here is what it is. We tend to take the story of the Bible and place it within our stories in order to determine what fits and doesn't fit. But we were meant to be placed into the story of the Bible. And when you take the Bible story and you force it into your own story, what you find is there's parts that don't fit. And so you start developing a canon within a canon. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because this kind of delight, this kind of openness and receptivity to God's word is something that I'm finding is increasingly rare. And I think it's so critically important to enter into what the psalmist is talking about here. C.S. Lewis writes, if our religion is some, oh, I have, it. I have this quote. If our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent, which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. Bob Verberg just pointed that quote out to me the other day. I'm like, oh, that's so good. I have found that the greatest breakthroughs in my joy and delight in God's word has come when I've faced up to those passages that trouble me the most. And that's what Lewis is talking about here. And the psalmist has reached this place where they have this love for God's word. Look what's going on inside of them. They have this delight, and it's coming from this practice, they meditate on God's word day and night. Now, I don't think he had the abide booklet. It's a day and night reading calendar, right? So, but he was going to God's word in a systematic, regular way because he loved to hear God speak. He loved to encounter God in and through the word. And it established this daily practice of meditation. By the way, the Hebrew word there is really cool. The Hebrew word is murmur. So he's constantly murmuring God's word constantly wanting to kind of understand it, won't let it go. Like a, you know, they say meditation is like being a dog chewing on a bone. Just, you know, when a dog gets a bone, it just it keeps going. It wants to get everything out of that bone. That's the picture here. Just loves it, just gnaws on it day in and day out. When we were looking for a new pastoral resident, we'd already knew wisdom was going to be a pastoral resident. We're looking for another one. We were doing interviews. And one of my favorite questions was, <clears throat> what, what book in the Bible do you love the most? And I would ask that question not because I'm hoping that they're going to say the epistles or, you know, the writings or, you know, the wisdom literature. I would ask that question because I wanted to hear about their relationship with the Bible. We had this inter these two interviews that were back-to-back. -back. I asked the first person, tell me about your relationship with the Bible. What is your favorite book in the Bible? And the response was, I don't, I don't know. Seminary has just made the Bible really difficult for me. And uh, I just, I don't even know what to do with the Bible anymore. Now, I'm not trying to give a guilt trip. We all go on a journey with God's word. And there's been times where I've struggled with it. And I, and I you know, but this person was heading in a direction where it was like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't think that you're really uh, <laughs> what we're looking for here. I want somebody that's in love with God's word. I want someone that, that you know, Wow, 
Well, the next interviewee, I asked the same question. Tell me about your relationship with uh, the Bible. What's, you, what's your favorite book? And the response was, the Bible? Oh my gosh, that's a hard question. I'm like a kid in a candy shop. Oh my gosh, I love the epistles. Oh, I love Corinthians. Oh, but the minor prophet, you know, and oh my gosh, and like the person, they blew up. They loved the Bible so much, they didn't even know where to begin. We hired that guy, okay? <laughs> that's John Segarian. I'm like, that's the kind of person who has a calling to ministry. They love, they delight in God's word. It's a candy shop. And that's exactly what we see here. And you know, if indeed, and let's just be honest here for a second, if indeed what the psalmist is saying, that happiness is possible, true happiness, and that it comes in and through God's word as we meditate and chew on it, it means that God's word is critical for 2023. God's word is critical. The way to happiness, true happiness, a sustained, lasting, deep happiness in 2023 is not going to come through wealth or winning the lottery or whatever it is. It's going to come through God's word. And so therefore, I mean, I, what if I told you you were going to win gold, a, a giant, a bunch of gold? I don't know. You're going to be on the Mount Wilson Trail and you're going to discover gold. Or you can get more deeply in love with the Bible. Which one would you choose? You know what it says? The Bible says, more to, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, is God's words. Happiness is so deeply contingent on getting in touch with God through Scripture. So happiness is about being a person who walks with God day in and day out and entering into this kind of rich, deep conversation with God. So this is what true happiness is about. The psalm then uses analogy to further explain what this happiness is like. Um, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Um, here's this tree. I love this, this analogy, this tree. And uh, this tree goes through all the seasons of life. You know, anything about seasons, you've got, you know, you've got the winter, it gets dark, you have storms, you've got the summer where it's dry and there's heat. And the tree's not blossoming all the time, it's not fruitful all the time, but it does produce fruit in its season. And here's the point of the story. The tree has something. What does it have? Any realtor will tell you, location, location, location. The tree didn't just happen to grow up by this riverbank. The tree was planted by that riverbank. And because of that, the tree has this continual, unending, unremitting, refreshing source of life. And what's the point? The Bible says that if you seek happiness in externals and circumstances, uh, you are going to miss out on foundational happiness. And where is that foundational happiness? That foundational happiness is within you. It's underneath you. It's in your roots. It comes from within inside you. It's the part of you that no one can see, that can't be placed on social media. Happiness is something that's got to be deeply rooted from within. And it comes when God takes his spirit and he creates life within you such that you can grow roots into God and you can begin to enjoy the life of God. The Bible calls that new birth. That's where an enduring happiness comes from. A Christian is not a nice person. It's not a religious person. It's someone who has been planted, planted by God into something that feeds the innermost recesses of their self. You know, one of the things that scares me in all of our conversation about, uh, you know, social identity markers that's taken place in our last five years 
is that there's nothing about our social identity markers that is going to produce true happiness. True happiness is it takes place in what theologians used to call the temple of the heart, the unhidden place where our true self is. That's where it's going to take place. This tree experiences all the afflictions of the season, the cold, the storms, the scorching summer, and yet its foliage never withers. You know, there's a lot of misunderstandings what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you always have this kind of cheesy smile on your face, no matter what's going on, you know, that you've kind of blocked off your emotions. This tree experiences the affliction of the seasons. This tree goes through it all. It doesn't have this kind of like, you know, and yet at the same time, this tree is, it it has roots. It's able to get through because it has a deeper source of life. You know, I was raised in a church where the ideal Christian was someone with a mono emotion. Like you only had, your emotional life was just like, you're just happy. You're always, you know, possibly jocular. You know, you're just always kind of, everything's happy. No, keep reading in the Psalms and you'll find the full range of emotional life, right? I mean, you're going to see it all. David's going to, there's times where he's despairing unto death. There's times where he's ecstatic because he survived, you know, sure death. I mean, all this stuff. If you have any doubts, look at what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 2.4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but we're not destroyed. This is a picture of this tree. And here's the deal. The tree does not continue on and flourish in spite of the seasons. The tree flourishes because of the seasons. It's when the storm hits and the wind hits that the tree has to rely on those roots. It's during the dry time when it's all going crazy, the tree has to dig down even deeper into that source of life. We've experienced it if you're a Christian. Some of the times of our greatest growth is when the storms hit, when the dry periods hit, and we say, okay, I know all this stuff, but I need something more. And we lean into God and we dig our roots down deeper. We also learn more about this true happiness Uh, in this contrasting image of the ungodly. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Most of us don't know what chaff is. I was unsure. I had to look it up. So chaff, by the way, is you can see two things. There's seeds and there's like the husk, that scaly, dry casing of the seeds. That is the chaff. Notice the seed is absent. The principle of life is absent in the chaff. And in this analogy where it's contrasting the tree and the chaff, the real contrast, I believe, is between the two different sources of influence. The tree is influenced by the water that feeds it at its core. And the chaff is influenced by the wind that goes all over the place. The water represents the deep nourishment at the core of our being that only God can give. And the wind represents the external circumstances that go every which way. And then the psalm ends by showing the end result of these two approaches to happiness. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God's judgment is a subject that we need to talk about more because it's deeply misunderstood. 
there's a lot of characterizations of the Christian view of God's judgment. And this verse is very helpful in understanding what, what the Bible teaches about God's judgment. It says here that our choices actually matter. That if we pursue something else as a source of happiness beside the very fountainhood of all bliss, if we are like the chaff, there's no principle of life in us. We, God has not placed his life in us, but instead we're grounding ourselves in superficial things, things that can never provide true happiness. If we dig our feet in like the scoffer and says, I want this, stop talking to me, I don't care. The scary thing is the Bible says God will let us get our way. C.S. Lewis says, there are two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. You know, when you read the greats who write about God's judgment, you read Dante and Lewis and Edwards, what they all say about God's judgment is the same thing that Paul says in Romans 1, that God's judgment is about God giving us over to the thing which we refuse to let go of. That's where you go from walking to standing to sitting, and I will not move. It's the same picture of Satan in Dante's hell who is frozen in ice and will not and cannot move. And if you come to the place where you insist, insist on trying to make a moment last forever, be careful because you might get what you're asking for. If you want to base your happiness on life's circumstances, which are always changing, be careful. You might get what you're asking for. Let me just be really clear here, okay? I'm not asking people today to look to God in order to get happiness. No, no, no. God is not our butler that serves things up. The charge of Psalm 1 is to look to God as your happiness. God is your happiness. And if we seek first, and this is the good news of Psalm 1, if we seek first God as our happiness, we will enter into the cauldron of all joy, the eternal source of all bliss, an infinite joy and an ending happiness that will never end. <laughs> like, wow. Like, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that is a joy. That is, a, that is something that you don't have to say goodbye to. It just gets better. And, and, and heaven is going to be a place where there's actually no satiation in the sense that we stop desiring, and yet at the same time, there'll be constant satiation. It'll be this incredible thing. That's what Psalm 1 is pointing us to. So... Are you on the path to true happiness? You know, Christians, I have three questions for you. First off, are there practices that have become ingrained in your life that you know go against God's path? It's never going to give you happiness. It's never going to really satisfy your soul, and you know that. Let's make 2023 the year. Maybe you need to become part of Celebrate uh, Recovery you know, whatever it is. But let's make it the year and stop dilly-dallying and be removed from the happiness that God has.
Maybe you're somebody that mostly does the right thing, but there's exceptions. You mostly tell the truth, but, you know, I mean, if I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to have to lie. You know, I, I, I mostly do the honorable thing, but if I'm going to lose a potential boyfriend or girlfriend, eh. You know what that says? It says you have a principle above all other principles, and that principle is I've got to be happy at all costs. And the irony of that is that when you make happiness your goal, the irony is, is actually you're never going to get it. If you make God your goal and you put him first, seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto you. And then finally, Christian, do you know how to enter into the Bible? And it becomes something that you get great joy from. Have you contented yourself with this thought, I'm just a thinker. Every, every time I enter it, I have to be in this place of uh, you know, great uh, cynicism. Ask God to melt your heart, to approach scripture with a posture of like, Lord, I want to hear from you. You know, a flute is no better than a leaky pipe if you don't know how to play it. You know, and if we don't know how to open God's word such that we hear the tune of the gospel begin to comfort the deepest recesses of our souls, then it's just a dead book. If you don't know Jesus, I want to ask you, are you ready to give up for lesser forms of happiness? Are you ready to find a foundational and unending and durable happiness? Are you shooting too low? You have been if you don't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you haven't come to the source of all satisfaction that he alone can bring. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Only Jesus can enter into the deepest part of your heart and transform you as a person. He is what you want. And it can start today and it's as simple as getting down on your knees and saying, Jesus, I need you. I've been pursuing so many things, but you are my creator, you're my redeemer. I wanna know you, come into my life. And he'll do that and he'll show you himself. Jesus is the great joy. The, the, Jesus is the one that we need. Jesus is the living water. And if you don't know him, I invite you to turn to him even today. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much that in your word you have shown us our true happiness, the happiness that, Lord, uh, can grow throughout our lifetime. And this year we pray that we will grow more deeply in love with you. We pray that this year will be the year in which we surrender all in new ways, significant ways, that we might be, uh, Lord, um, marked by a deep and enduring peace and contentment, even in and through the storms. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.